Well, I'm going to ask you to take God's Word in your hands and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and uh, uh, grab that Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our text on page 1015, 1000. And 15. And uh, we have been since this last fall focusing our time and attention on uh, 1 Peter, a letter, a five chapter letter that was written by the Apostle Peter, one of the followers of Jesus Christ. And he writes it to a group of people that are scattered abroad uh, in a province of Asia Minor. In fact, it's uh, many different provinces of, of what is now modern day Turkey. And these are exiles and strangers, these are people living in a strange land. Uh, they have been, uh, they've moved away from their homeland and are now in a place where they find themselves in some ways isolated and alone. And Peter writes to them, telling them that they're not alone. And yet, in this world, that they would suffer and there would be strife amongst them. But in this letter, he tells them over and over again, you can have hope. And there's hope, and that hope is in uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ. That this hope that Peter's talking about is the only antidote that we have in this world of suffering and pain. And what he tells us, especially in our text this morning, is something very critical to our life as Christians. While you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have come to Jesus, and I want you to hear me carefully, singularly, what that means is we've come as an individual. My parents couldn't come for me, and I can't uh, come for you uh, when it comes to trusting in Jesus as our Savior. We come as individuals, but we enter into a body where we cannot live life separately. And so as we come as individuals, we come into this family, this body of believers, where we are to do life together. And what we are going to learn today is something that I've learned in not only throughout the writings of Scripture, but also through one of my favorite books written by uh, the great theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in Germany during the reign of Hitler in World War II. And the premise of his book, Life Together, he gives this simple thesis. He says that the Christian cannot and will not reach their full potential without the deep and loving relationships of others. What Bonhoeffer is saying is, is if you think that you're going to get all that you want out of the Christian life by living it alone, then you've got something coming to you. And that is a bunch of sorrow and, uh, and a lack of joy and contentment. Because there are certain things we can do alone in Christ but we need one another. And I want you to notice what he says about it in this book, Life Together. He says, when the people of God come together to share their lives openly and freely. Have you come this morning with a desire to do that? Bonhoeffer says that when we come together, there's sharing going on. And it's done freely and openly. He says, we accept each other with a kind of unconditional positive regard. It is there that there's a sort of social slash spiritual chemistry that emerges. It isn't that we're close together because we all like the same things or we're a part of the same generation or that we root for the same sports teams or drive the same kind of cars. It's because of this chemistry in Christ that emerges that those who come together experience a delightful cohesion and a sense of belonging. He says the church is the place where everyone is related in a family relationship. That one man is another man's brother, and a one woman is another woman's sister. We are called as God's people to endure with one another in our burdens, to help direct others to a more holy life. This enduring is so pervasive, it's so important, that even when a person strays from the truth and pursues sin, 
It is the problem of the entire group. And it is the entire group's responsibility to get him or her back on the right track again, no matter the cost. I know that's a long quote, but I want you to know that rings true at the heart of Village Bible Church. In our mission statement, we say that we want to be a family. We don't want to just be a group of people who sing songs together and study a book together, but we want to be a family of deep and profound relationships. Our hope and desire is that the people that come into this place don't come simply for a Sunday morning appointment, but come to be a part of something that is bigger than themselves. Founded on the work of Jesus Christ, we from many different places and many different backgrounds gather together to be a body. And that's what Peter's going to share with us this morning. He is going to say that the Christian life is about us as a whole and how you can make me holy and how I can help you become holy. Because if we don't have one another, the holy life that we pursue will be very difficult to attain. And so let's look at our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's word as we look at our text that is before us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and it says the following. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous and wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I want everybody to look up here for just a moment. I want to speak to you uh, in a way that I've not spoken before. I want you to know something, and I, you know I'm not melodramatic, and I've never said this before, but I didn't sleep last night. I didn't sleep last night because I'm grieved for us as a church. I'm grieved about what I read in Scripture and how important it is for us to follow God's Word, even when it's hard to do so. And so what I'm asking you today, before I pray, is that if it's your custom to take a nap while I preach, listen up. If it's your custom to casually push away what I say, please hear me, because it is of great importance because our souls are at stake. And if it doesn't mean anything to you after it's all done, I want to assure you of something. If that's not important to you, then you've wasted your time this morning. Find a hobby, find a task to go through your life. But if you're serious about what God's word has to say, then there's a word for each and every one of us this morning. So let's go before the Lord, let's seek God together as his people, and let's see what God will have to share with us this morning. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, you know my heart has been arrested by the truth of this scripture this week. Father, I pray that you would speak clearly through me like you've never spoken through me before, that my words would be right and that they would be true. Father, I pray that like never a time before that the people of this church would listen, that they would hear your word, that they would obey it. Father, that there would be a joy in their heart to live out the truth of 1 Peter chapter nine, or chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. 
Oh, Father, you've called us to be a people, a holy people. And so, Lord, I pray that we would pursue that. But, Lord, I pray that we would engage with one another as a family, united in Christ to do good works that you've prepared for us in advance to do. Lord, you've called us out of darkness, and you've brought us into your light so that we may proclaim it to one another and so that we may proclaim it to the world around us that you are our God, you are our Savior, you are our only hope and stay as we've sung this morning. Father, we need Jesus. Each and every hour, we need him. So I pray that he would, uh, in his presence, descend upon this place this morning. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen and amen. God bless you. Let's go ahead and be seated. I want to jump right into our text this morning under the heading Personal Holiness, a Community Project. And what I mean by that is, for far too long, Christians have thought that the Christian life is all about them. And it's not. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that the totality of one's Christian life falls on them and them alone. Your holiness is not all about you. You've been brought into a family. You've been brought into a people group that Peter says. And your job is to help one another. I am to help you and you are to help me. We are to work together in a fervent and brotherly love that allows us to see God in all his fullness and to help one another live upright and holy lives. But how are we to do that this morning? We have learned in our text that we are living stones from last week being built up into a spiritual house. And so I'm a stone and you're a stone and and God in his wonderful plan is building up this glorious house that will be revealed on the great and glorious day of his coming. And as we're being built up, our job is to help one another live out the roles and the focuses that Christ has called us to. But how are we to do that as a people today? I want you to notice these three headings this morning. First of all, in your bulletins, I want you to see that if we're going to live out this community project of bringing people closer to Christ, it begins with us remembering the position that God has placed us in, the position that God places us in. I want you to notice in verse 9, right away in the text, that Peter starts with the word but. There's a contrast going on here. And what Peter is beginning with is he's wanting to contrast where we are at and where the others are at. Now notice who are the others. In verses 7 and 8, we are told that the others are those who do not believe. They are the ones who uh, have rejected the stone that has become the cornerstone. They're the ones that have rejected Jesus Christ. They don't believe in Christ. They reject him. And he has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It tells us that they disobey the word as they were destined to, and that's what causes their stumbling. But Peter says, you're not like that. But here's the problem. Those who disobey the word, those who stumble over Jesus, find themselves under a heading that I want you to write down in your bulletin somewhere. And that is the word alienation. They're alienated, those people who don't believe. They're alienated. But who are they alienated from? Scripture tells us God, that they're enemies of God, that though they see God in all of his invisible qualities seen throughout creation, they say no to God, and they turn to a lie instead of believing the truth. 
And so what Peter is saying is you're not amongst those people. You believe in Jesus. He's your foundation. He's your cornerstone. You're being built up as living stones because you put your hope and your trust in him. And so those who don't believe, they're alienated. There's alienation. But I want you to also recognize that just because we believe, just because we put our hope and our trust in him, we too suffer from alienation. While our alienation is not with God because no longer are we enemies of God, we're friends of God, we're children of God, we are partakers in the divine nature with Christ, we have all of these great and glorious spiritual qualities that have been added to us. So we're not alienated from God, but you know what? We're alienated from the world around us. So alienation is the ball game. The question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, am I going to be alienated from God? Or am I going to be alienated from the world? And some people love the world so much that they would rather alienate themselves from God than ever think about alienating themselves from the world. And so what happens is, is when we say to God, I want you, Lord, I need you, as we've sung today, you know what the world does? They say, well, we don't want you anymore. You're not playing by the same rules You're not doing what we do here in the world. You don't talk like we do. You don't act like we do. Your views are a lot different than our views are. And so you know what? We're not going to spend all that time with you. We're not going to engage with you because you're cramping our style. You're keeping us. Man, we always feel judged when you're around. Have you had relationships like that? Where people have said, you know, you kind of put a damper on things. You're a nice guy and all of that, but the way you do things, the way you think through things, it just doesn't work for us. And so alienation is the ongoing thing for the people in this world. Alienation from God or the decision by the Christian to be with Christ and be alienated from the world. And so we find ourselves in this position. Now, the people that Peter's writing to are alienated alienated from the people around them. They're exiles, they're sojourners, they're aliens and strangers in the land where God has put them. And Peter's wanting to remind the people that they're not alone. You see, for a lot of us, when we find ourselves alienated in this world, we find ourselves alone and isolated. For you teenagers that are attending public school, you may be the only Christian in your midst and you feel isolated and alone. For you in the workplace, where maybe you're the only one who stands for Christ, there's isolation. There's a feeling of loneliness. But Peter wants to remind us that we're not alone in this endeavor. That the very place where uh, Peter says these people are, in Cappadocia and Bithynia, and, and in the uttermost parts of Asia Minor, that God is with them, but even greater than just God's presence with them, he has given us his spirit so that we can be together with one another. And so we're not in isolation. We don't find ourselves alone, but we have been a part, been brought into a, being a part of the body of Christ. And so notice what he says about us. The position we find ourselves in is a position with all other believers. And he says, first of all, you, these, uh, these believers, these alienated people of the world are a special people. He says this, you are a chosen race. He's a cho- we're a chosen race. Now, as he begins to unveil this, what he is doing is, is he is establishing who we are because there's a job for us to do. 17 years ago, my dad came into my room, and it was around this time of the year, and he said, Tim, he says, I want you to start thinking about something. And 
My dad doesn't usually respond to me like that. And he says, I really want you to think about something, and I want you to ponder what I'm going to ask you. He says, I'm believing the Lord is calling me to ministry. I said, Dad, I've known that, and, and I'm aware of that. You, you've been serving in the church for a long time, and it totally makes sense. You do a great job with it. But he says, I'm not going to just serve the Lord in a part-time way or in a lay ministry way. I believe God's calling me to a church. I said, okay. I said, that sounds great. And he says, but there's a problem. What are we going to do with our catering business? I said, yeah, that's a good question, Dad. What are you going to do? He says, well, that's why I'm here, son. And he said, I want you to take it over. And son, I think you can do it. I think you're capable of it. I think I've helped you to understand the ins and outs of the company, and, and though you're scared, and, and though it may be a task that you think is far bigger than you, I think you can do it. And I'm going to be there, and I'm going to help you, uh, and we'll do it together, and we'll work together, but I'm entrusting you this great task of taking over a business that they had, had started in 1979 with all of their hard work, and he's giving it to this 18-and-a-half, 19-year-old kid and I was no normal 19-year-old kid, and that's not a good thing. And he says, I'm entrusting it to you. And he said, but there's one thing. And he says, if you're going to do it, I'm giving you my customers. And I want when they see you, when they see you serving them and interacting with them, I want them to see me. I want the same integrity, the same business ethics, the same pursuit of excellence that I have for this business to be yours as well. What Peter is telling us is very similar to my dad's words to me. We've got a task that we've been entrusted with. God is sitting there and he's saying, you're a special people. I believe in you and I know that you can accomplish the task even though you may, don't, you may not think you can do it yourself. But I believe in you and I'm going to be there with you. And I'm going to put people around you that are going to enable you to do it. But here's the one catch. If you're going to take on this mission, that means you need to serve the world and the people around us just like our Father did. So that when we are out serving and we're out uh, living our lives, that they don't see us, but they see our God in heaven. That we live such upright and holy lives, as Peter says, that even though they will accuse us of doing wrong in this world, that they may glorify the God, our Father in heaven. You see, we are to serve holy lives together as a people so that we may reflect the God we serve in heaven. It's a great trust that's been given to us. And he says that we need to be a special people, and he's made us special. He calls us a chosen race. That word chosen means is right when you begin to think that, oh, look at me, God picked me on his team, like we're out on recess again, and we're the first person chosen. Wow, I must be really good at this. God must have needed me in this great endeavor. Well, God didn't need you, and he didn't need me, but out of his grace and mercy, he sovereignly chose us to be his people. Now, the reason why he has done this is for a specific task. But there's something that needs to be a part of what unifies us as a people because it's not good enough for us just to be unified in mission. We have to be unified in the very essence of who we are. And so when he says you're a chosen race, the idea is, is that you are a chosen people who come from the same lineage. You come from the same dad. 
You have the same parents, if you will. And as a result of that, you are going to be different than everybody else in the world. And so what he says to us is very clearly that God has picked us as a people to be a people who come from all different places but come under the banner of Jesus Christ. But what are we to do with that? He goes on, he says, you're to be spiritual people. He says, you're to be a royal priesthood. Peter speaks of the idea of royalty now. The word royal is a word in the Greek that means to be fit for a king. Do you know today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that God has put his stamp of approval on you? And it's not because of something you've done, just as God chose Israel to be his covenant people back in the Old Testament. And it wasn't based on anything of their might or power or greatness. They were the least among nations, that you and I are the least among people, and God has said, you are approved for my purpose. Now, notice it also royalty speaks of a person with great power and authority. What a word of encouragement to these scattered exiles who feel isolated, who feel alone, who feel powerless. They're being beat up by their bosses. They're being beat up by their family. They're being beat up by the governing authorities around them, as we'll see uh, next week. These are a broken people, and they are being told by their leader, Peter, that they are a people of royalty, a people of authority. But how are they to use this authority, and how are we to use this authority that God has given us? The answer is seen in the job that we're given. We are a royal priesthood. Our job is to be a people who dedicate ourselves to the work of God in all facets of life. Gone are the Old Testament priests who were consigned to be a group of men, a part of the Levitical line uh, of uh, descendants of, of Israel. No longer are they just to be a certain segment of people, but now male and female, Greek and Jew, slave and free, are all called into this task of being a royal priesthood who are to serve up spiritual sacrifices to God. We're to serve as bridge builders, as we learned last week. First of all, bridge builders towards one another. As Christ ambassadors, we implore upon one another that we continue to reconcile ourselves to God. And once we've done that well, we are able to then go out into the world and proclaim the greatness of Jesus who called us out of darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. And so we are a spiritual people. But notice that we are also a specific people. He says a holy nation. What God is speaking about is a certain or specific group of people. When he talks about us as the people of God, we are not just this mob of uh, unnamed or faceless people in a crowd. The word nation in the Greek speaks of a certain group of people. It's a common community. Just as we are a part of the nation, the United States of America, it's a distinguishing factor to who we are. Because we're Americans, we do things differently than most other people in the world. Our food is different. Our language is different. Our customs are different. Because we are a people of a certain nation. Well, what Peter is telling us as a people unto God is that we are going to be different than that of the world. And the distinguishing factor about our customs, about the way we talk, about the way we live, about the traditions, and the focuses that we have is a singular word, and that is we are going to be a holy nation. 
We're going to be set apart. It is that holiness that sets us apart from the ways of this world. And so we are different than all other kinds of people. And that's why the world looks at us and they say, you're wasting your time. The world looks at us and says, who are you serving? I don't see any God. And why are you giving all of your time and, and your money and your energy to this God? It makes no sense to me. And Peter reminds us that we're going to be different. We're going to be a holy nation. Now, all of that then leads us to be a speaking people. Notice in the text that what we are to do now that we know who we are is that we've been put together a people for God's own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. You know, one of the customs of our day today is that everybody's out parading about who they are and what they're all about. We see it all the time. People promoting uh, their way of life and their way of thinking. But you know who has found themselves um, all too much or all too many times silent is the church. We don't talk very much, and when we do, we usually got to put our foot in our mouth because we're saying something stupid. And so, what happens is, is we neglect what Peter is saying. Peter says we have a singular message, and that singular message is to proclaim Him. Who's the Him? It's not me. It's not you. It's Jesus. And we need to proclaim Jesus to the world around us. And how do we do it? It's quite simple. It's not aggressive. It's not harsh. It's not judgmental. It is, I was in darkness, and let me tell you what that darkness looked like. And then I met Jesus, and I found his scriptures, and I was brought into his marvelous light. As the blind man said, I don't know all of your theological jargon, Pharisees, but I was once blind and now I help me out. I see. Who's going to argue with that? And if you can live that life in response to that, that I was in darkness, you saw my life, you saw my selfishness, you saw my greed and all of my hypocrisy, and now you see that I'm a different person who gives my life over to the God for the well-being of the people around me. People are going to have a hard time fighting that. They're going to have a hard time disputing that if we are the holy nation, the people of God's possession that we're called to be. We're to proclaim Jesus. I love what Spurgeon says about this. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a pastor of over 100 years ago in London, he said, these are wonderful terms of honor that are heaped upon the people of God. Oh, the dignity and praise he has given to us sinners who have been made saints. What a high office and solemn responsibility that is ours. May we have the grace to receive them and use them in all aspects of our lives. So what are we to do now? What is our job? Now we know that we're the collective people of God who he has empowered and enabled with great gifts of his spirit. He's allowed us to gather together under the banner of Jesus Christ. What are we to do? A lot of churches think that our sole job is when uh, different uh, calamities befall the world that we're there to spearhead relief efforts. Well, that's a part of our mission, but that's the number, not the number one. Well, then what it is is to fill stadiums and large gathering spaces for evangelistic crusades. That's got to be it. Well, no, that's one of them, but it's not the first. 
The first job we have, the number one job you have as being a part of the family of God is to be the protection and care and support to other believers. Your job is to care, support, and protect other believers. And when we've got that down and we've got that figured out, it is then and only then that we can go out and proclaim to the world who we are in Christ. You see, we get that backwards sometimes. We think we can just go out and proclaim a message, and what people say is, well, I I hear the message, but I want to see the message lived out. What the world needs to see is that we are Christians because of our love and our support and our care for one another. And so that the people of Sugar Grove say, that group of people that, that, that are over there on the corner of Bliss Road and 47, they're different. They're peculiar. Well, why are they peculiar? They love each other. They serve one another. Do you know they share money with each other when they are in need? Nobody has a need amongst them because they take care of one another. What a testimony to the church. But here's the thing. It goes even deeper than that, and Peter addresses it. And notice our second point is that Peter says that we need to remember the passions that Peter pleads with us to resist. Where does that first frontline ministry come for one another? In verse 11. Notice the text. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The phrase there, wage war against your soul, is a soldier term for a soldier to take his proper stance. The war is raging on, and our job is to be like soldiers in one another's lives. And so we need to recognize, first of all, there's a war going on. And there's a war for our souls. And this is why, in many reasons, I I lost sleep last night, because I think we're losing in this battle. The people of God are not the soldiers that they're supposed to be. We are a bunch of people who are oblivious that there's a battle raging on. And because of that, we so quickly fall to sin. And so Peter says to us, you guys got to be ready. And you got to help one another as God's holy people to stay away and resist the passions that are around us. I want you to notice a couple things about these passions. First of all, these passions are things we struggle with. They're things we all struggle with. And so what Peter says is, I need you guys to get together, and I need to urge you with regards to something. Peter says, I urge you, beloved. There's a term of endearment there. I love you guys, and so I'm going to lead you to truth. I love you, and so I'm going to call out things in your life so that you don't fall into a trap. I love you, and because of that, I'm going to, with great passion, urge you to do something. Now notice this urging that he talks about is going on in a habitual and continual time. It's happening all the time. Every Sunday we gather together, there should be some urging going on. How are you doing in your walk with Christ? How are you doing in your marriage? How are you doing with your kids? How are you doing with your money? We need to be urging one another. Be careful. There's a lot of temptations out there. The last thing we should say as we leave this parking lot to one another is don't forget there's a war out there. And people are losing their spiritual lives. And yet so many of us so quickly say, well, you know what, Tim? That's good. I'm glad the teenagers are in here to listen to this. I'm glad Junior's here. He needs to hear this. 
He's watching some things, and his, his friends have got him caught up in some things. I'm glad Sally uh, is here. As a young lady, she needs to know of those dangers. Let me tell you something. All of us struggle with these passions, every one of us. I've told you this before, and I'll say it again. I don't struggle with certain kinds of sins. I struggle with all of them, every one of them, even the dirty ones. You want to know why? Because the heart's wicked. And you know what? As I live in this life, my body is susceptible to all kinds of junk. And so I see a lot of things, and it may start out with a nice little pretty sin, you know, nothing that anybody would be too embarrassed with, and just give it a little time and and pet that sin for a little bit and, and give that sin some attention, and before you know it, you'll find yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. But some of you right now are saying in your heart, but that's not me. Well, let me tell you something. The Bible says, take heed lest you fall. Take heed lest you fall. Because we're all prone to this. You know, Peter... He got it. Why do you think he got it? Why do you think he's, I almost lost it. I left my Jesus. I said I would never leave. Everybody else will leave, but I won't, Jesus. And some of you are sitting there just like Peter did. And Jesus says, hey, before the cock crows three times tonight, you're going to deny me. And some of you, before you get into the work week, you're going to sin against your God. And you are going to sit in this pew and say, no, not me. I'm glad someone else is here to hear this. Why does this happen? Well, you say, Tim, we're believers. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We've we've had a life change done in our lives. Let me bring up the the, uh, object lesson of Michael Lund this morning to you. Michael Lund had a bad heart. And Michael Lund, for a long time, has been dealing with a bad heart. And and yesterday, last night, while we were sleeping, or some of us were up, uh, Michael Lund got a new heart. They took out the one, and they put a new one in. And you say, well, his heart issue is taken care of. Yep, it is. But right now and for the days to come, Michael Lund will live in an immunocompromised position. And what that means is any kind of illness, any kind of sickness that gets around Michael, he is susceptible to all things. Well, you and I have been given a heart transplant as believers. But while we're in this world, we are susceptible to all kinds of garbage. And the smallest little thing could kill us. It could steal us of our joy and our hope. And so we need to be careful. We all struggle with it. Notice these things are strong. And they're not to be messed with. These passions, this word passions, comes from the Greek word epithumia. It speaks of impulses and desires in the Greek language. I don't know how else to put it, but they're on steroids. These are things that are running amok in our lives. They may start out with a healthy place. But F.B. Meyer says these passions and appetites are running wild in the natural man. And the problem with these appetites and these passions is they have an insatiable appetite. You'll never get your fill. So young man and young woman that thinks that, that uh, um, pursuing physical um, relationships with another person, well, I'll take care of it, I'll find my, my fill in that, you'll never find your fill in the things of this world. So stop trying to feed yourself that because you'll always come away hungry. Oswald Chambers said, Love can wait and worship endlessly, but fleshly passions say that I must have it all at once. What are you willing to eat or drink of today that in the end will allow you to lose your soul? There's a war going on. 
And far too many are being sabotaged in their walks as a result. Notice, he says they're waging war with our souls. And so he says, I want you to abstain from them. Peter uses a word that no doubt he had learned while being a fisherman. That word there, abstain, was a term of warning that was given to a captain of a vessel. And what it meant was, and the best way I can explain it is if you've ever seen the movie Titanic, remember that the, the, the ship captain is sailing along quickly. And there's concern about icebergs in the North Atlantic. And then they show these two guys up in this cold little uh, lookout place, and their job is to look out for icebergs. And they are to yell down to the captain if they see anything that's coming their way that could run the ship a wreck. And so what happens? They see the iceberg, but they're going too fast and without any regard for what may be in front of them, and they can't steer away quickly enough, and they hit the iceberg, and of course, many lives are taken. The problem is, is that we need to abstain. That is that we need people in our lives who call out to us and say, beware, danger ahead. Icebergs in front of us. There's a big rock in front of us. There's a big pit in front of you. Run away from it. Abstain means distance yourself from it. And it is done in middle voice, meaning someone else is telling us to do it. And so when Peter says abstain, he's telling you, the people of God, to tell me, the person of God, get away as quickly as possible. Do all you can to steer away from the trouble that's coming. That's the goal and the purpose of the church, to help one another in loving relationships so that we will not shipwreck our faith. And that's why holiness, personal holiness, is a community project. Because I can't be holy without you helping me, and you can't be holy without me helping you. We need each other. And so that's why we are so big on community here at Village Bible Church. It's not so that we can put on our lapels how great of a church we are, because we recognize as a church that in this world, a war is going on. And far too many people have had their spiritual lives sabotaged because they were too, and please hear me, they were too stupid to look out for the trouble that was coming their way. And they were too prideful to be able to ask someone to be on the lookout for them. Just think of it biologically for a moment. I can see my front pretty well. I can't see my back. I can't even keep track of my whole self. I need someone to say, hey, uh, you know what, everything on the front looks good and, and, and you're in a good spot, but you've got some blind spots back there. As a bald man, I have to do something. I have to ask my wife every time I shave, hey, head check, head check. Why? Because I can't see the back of my head. I've tried with mirrors and it just doesn't work. And so I have to ask my wife another so that I don't get put to shame. That I don't walk in here and there's just this patch of dark hair sitting there. So I have to say, Amanda, will you look and will you check areas I can't check in my life? But you know what that means? It means I have to be humble enough to say, and this is very small, but Amanda, I'm not as good of a shaver as I think. I miss some areas, and so i got to be willing to show you my shortcomings so that you can point them out. And so Amanda, when she says it, she goes, you moron. What's your problem? You missed a spot again. It's a massive. What is your problem? Well, you're, you're 36 years old. You've been bald for more than a decade. You would have think you would have figured it out by now. 
No, she says, hey, Tim, no, you, you missed the spot right here. Right here? No, no, not there. Right here. All right, let's clean it up. That's the role of Christians in the lives of each other. Look at that spot. You missed it. It's all right. We all miss it sometimes. It's not easy. But I wanted to point it out because I don't want you to be put to shame. I don't want you to miss out on God's grace. And so how do we get there? How do we do this? Notice my third point this morning, and it's, a, it's shorter, but stick with me. This is of vital importance. God has given us a plan that provides us the ability to be victorious. And what's that plan? It's care. Notice in the, uh, the acronym there that care is at the forefront of what we do as believers. And so how do we do it? First of all, it begins with a commitment to God's word. How are we going to be victorious in this world where the war is waging on? We take the sword of truth. And we take it and we hold up God's scripture. And we live life. And like newborn babies, we, we crave the spiritual milk of the word. We obey in obedience to the truth, Peter says. And we do it together. So one of the ways that I show you my love as a teacher is to teach God's word to you. It's to proclaim God's truth to you. Right now there are teachers talking to little kids right now and they are loving on them by teaching them the truths of God in his word. We need to love each other and commit to one another. And so that's why in almost every gathering we have here at Village Bible Church, this takes its center place. We need this. This is the way we are going to find our strategy to win the war. Number two, it's going to involve accountability to God and each other. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then I'm going to assume that you want to please God. And if you want to please God, then it's going to mean that we're going to need to help one another to do it. That I'm going to need you to help me to please God, and you're going to need me to help you please God. And when we work together, and we do so with a desire for holiness in one another's life, it is then and only then that we will truly see God for all that he is. Number three, notice that it involves relationships that show brotherly love. This cannot happen. This will never be brought to fruition if we do not, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, love each other with a fervent and sincere brotherly love that comes from a pure heart. Christianity will never be the powerful thing that Christ desires and enabled it to be unless we love one another. It is then and only then that we will truly experience the presence of God in our midst when we show love to one another through sacrifice and care and obedience and a commitment to God's word. But what happens when, when one within our community, when one of our brothers and sisters, when one of our own fails in that? It's not their problem alone. You see, when one of us falls to sin, it's our whole problem. You see, the health and vitality of our church, again, is not based on our attendance or our budget or our word-of-mouth marketing. What it is based on is the health of each and every one of us. And so when one of us is unhealthy, all of us are unhealthy. We need to help one another. So what happens when one turns away from the truth? What happens when one willfully rejects the call of Scripture? 
and willfully throws off the desire to abstain from these sinful desires? What happens when one stops trying to abstain from those things and runs as fast as they can to that life and to that pursuit? Well, the Scripture tells us that we are to help one another before their spiritual shipwreck. And so what happens? We extend love through community correction. The Bible gives clear directives for the church to pursue when someone chooses to pursue sin instead of obedience. And this happens far too often. There are many of us right now who are coming and going in this place who are struggling with sin. And we need to tell somebody about it because that sin will inevitably eat at our souls and we will walk away from the truth. And so what is the church to do? The church is to call it out. The church is to help those who wander from the faith to restore them and to do it gently. Matthew 18 helps us with this. Turn in your Bibles just for a moment to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, chapter, uh, Matthew 18 uh, verses 15. It tells us what to do when one wanders away from the truth, when one starts to sin against us and, and our God. Matthew 18, verses 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. When I listen to Amanda, I'm able to hold my head up high. She's shown me my wrong, and I've been able to fix it. And I'm encouraged that she did that for me. And she's encouraged that she doesn't have a husband going around with patches on his head. And everybody's blessed. That's what Jesus is saying here. But if he does not listen, take two or three others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What if he doesn't listen to them after two or three go and say, Hey, there's this blind spot. You're missing it. You're wandering away from the truth. Well, if he refuses to listen to them, verse 17 says... You're to tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, you're to let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In essence, you're to remove him from your midst, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us. For truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed on hev in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I want you to hear something. We use that verse all the time. So we have a small group of people. A whole bunch of people are sick, and only a couple of us are there. And we say, oh, well, there's two. Okay, three. God's with us. That's not what's going on here. What it's saying is, is when we make personal holiness a community project, God says he uniquely inhabits his people. And he does so so that we might be a part of the ongoing community correction of others. The people of God are compelled and commanded by the truths of Scripture to exhort, correct, and even discipline wayward believers. Not because we are a bunch of legalistic, pious policemen, but because this discipline is done with love. Love for the one who wanders and love for the God whom we serve.